when it comes to non-binary gender and non-heteronormative sexualities, are some academics imposing modern notions on ancient practices. Welcome back to another Friends of ASOR podcast. I'm Caitlin Anderson. In this podcast, I spoke with Yurash Matich over Skype. He's a PhD candidate at the University of Munster. We spoke about his recent article in the Near Eastern Archaeology titled Gender in Ancient Egypt, Norms, Ambiguities, and Sensualities. My article is actually a short overview of current state of knowledge of certain aspects of gender in ancient Egypt. The examples I chose are not limited to any particular period of Egyptian history, and I emphasized how gender systems have changed over time. After all, we are dealing with more than 3,000 years of dynastic history of Egypt, so this is to be expected, I would say. And you mentioned that aging is more frequently represented in men and women of lower status, and that elite women are often depicted young or sexually attractive. But when elite women are shown with signs of aging, it appears to be an expression um, of status. Can you explain a little bit what you mean by that? I, I kind of get uh, why this could sound, sound a little bit complicated to a reader. Uh, with this, I was actually referring to research conducted by Deborah Sweeney from Tel Aviv University. Uh, she wrote an excellent study, an article on gender and aging in 2004, and uh, she actually showed how from early on representations of aging are more frequent in elite men than in women, as the youthful representations of women were necessary in order to be sexually attractive and assist the male regeneration in the afterlife. So she further adds that the representations of people of lower status with signs of aging are common. However, during the New Kingdom, which would be from 16th to 11th century BC, for those listeners who don't know this, uh, and especially during the Amana period in the middle of the 14th century BC, aging becomes a visual sign of wisdom and experience in representation of men. In your article, you mentioned the possibility of a third gender that's been posited in cases um, such as that of the New Kingdom tale of two brothers. Could you recap that tale for our listeners who might not be familiar with it? And are there any other possible examples um, or thought to be examples? Well, before we come to the issue of third gender, yes or no, uh, it's an excellent idea for this problem. So the tale of the two brothers is an ancient Egyptian story that dates from the reign of Amenmese or Seti, uh, who ruled from 1200 to 100, uh, 1194 BC uh, during the 19th dynasty of the New Kingdom. And the story is preserved on the papyrus d'Orbini, which is currently preserved in the British Museum in London. The story centers an older and married brother Anpu and younger brother Bata. Being unmarried, Bata lives with his older brother and his wife. They work together, they farm land and raise cattle. And one day, Anpu's wife tries to seduce Bata. However, Bata rejects her. The wife then tells her husband the false version of the story, namely that Bata attempted to seduce her and not the other way around. So Anpu, the older brother, tries to kill Bata for this. Bata then prays to Gadre to help him, and Gadre creates a lake full of crocodiles between the two brothers. This is how Bata manages to tell his side of the story. And to prove his sincerity, Bata severs his genitalia and throws them into water, where they are eaten by catfish. 
For us, it is important that later in the story, Gad Hnum makes a wife for Bata, and Bata tells his wife not to leave the house because of the god of the sea, Jan, would take her, and Bata could not save her. And now the most interesting part for our discussion, and that is the reason Bata states for this. He says, because I am a woman like you, referring to what he did to his body. So, I myself do not consider this to be evidence for the existence of a third gender category in ancient Egypt or the New Kingdom, because the loss of genitals in the case of Bata and his comparison of himself with a woman rather indicates the phallocentric perspective of this whole story. Namely, a man is the one who has a penis, a woman is the one who does not. One of the Egyptian words for man in Middle Egyptian is chai, written with a phallus determinative. This is a sign which determines the meaning of the word in Middle Egyptian. And one of the words for the phallus is mecha. So you can see that there is a, a phonological connection. So chai, man, mecha, phallus. And this is one more indication that being man is related to having a phallus. And notice how in the story of the two brothers, the loss of the phallus means losing the masculine identity. Your second question was, uh, are there any other possible examples of this? So spontaneously, I can think of God Seth who killed Osiris and he cut his body in pieces, which his wife Isis then collected and reassembled the body. However, the only body part which was missing was the penis of Osiris, which Isis has to magically make. And uh, this is how she manages to have sex with Osiris. And uh, this is how uh, she, in the end, gives birth to Horus, who defeats Set and becomes the king himself. Important for our discussion and the topic of my paper uh, and my PhD project, which I'm finishing at the moment, is the military practice of cutting of the folly of the Libyan enemies in New Kingdom. Namely, gender was one of the frames of war in New Kingdom Egypt, and enemies are often described as women or women-like. Libyan enemies are depicted with their phalli attached to their scrotum on the battle reliefs of Medinet Habu temple. However, these phalli are depicted flaccid, which was against New Kingdom Egyptian notions of masculinity. Exactly because of these reasons, Egyptian elite men of the New Kingdom are always depicted dressed. Otherwise, they would have to be depicted with flaccid penises, which is not desirable. Thus, we can argue for framing of Libyan soldiers as less men than the Egyptian soldiers, being that they are depicted with a phalli clearly visible and not erected. There are also depictions of cut-off shafts of their phalli in piles being counted by Egyptian scribes. Sometimes the numbers are so high of these cut-off members that we can indeed doubt that they are legit, the numbers, but not the practice. Again, this further confirms the strongly androceptic notions of gender, which is not surprising as the context is military, which was, according to our evidence, exclusively male sphere of action in ancient Egypt. Right, but that wouldn't necessarily be about a third gender as much as hurting or embarrassing the opponent. My point exactly. So this is what aiming at. Losing a phallus does not necessarily mean turning someone into a third gender as a category which exists in a gender system. Because when we speak about third, fourth, fifth, or whichever non-binary gender identity, 
we are usually, anthropologically speaking, talking about gender systems which allow sense of such an identity. And we simply do not have evidence, considering that from anthropological point of view, having a third gender in society or any other non-binary gender identity means having a society which allows the existence of these non-binary categories. We would have to expect to have evidence for this in ancient Egypt. However, we do not have much data and evidence which could indicate that there was a category such as third gender, with which people could identify themselves with. So these examples would support binary gender norms. Um, I mean, is that what you're saying in your article? I'm, I'm actually arguing that the examples which were so far brought forward for the existence of third gender are actually showing exactly the opposite. As I already said, there is no evidence for third gender comparable to the existence of third gender in some other cultures let's say, Hydra in India, at least we do not have this for the New Kingdom. And that would be... And as I already... Sorry? sorry? I was just going to say, and that would Please. be third gender as we know it today, though. Yes, but I will give you some indication of a possible of a possible third gender category. So, for example, there, there are authors who argue that uh, when a goddess is depicted with a beard or an erect penis, uh, that this is maybe an indication that there is some kind of a blurring of the binary categories. However, we should bear in mind that this is a religious context and that this is not attested in any other context. Uh, even Hatshepsut, who is known to have adopted male iconography later in her reign, is never depicted with a penis. The only exception for this is the representation of Hatshepsut being created by God Hnum as a child with penis in the temple of Deir el-Bahari. However, in my recent article on Hatshepsut published in Journal of Archaeological Method and Theory, I argued how adopting male or more precisely the iconography of a king, who is usually a male in ancient Egypt, was necessary for Hatshepsut in order for her to be depicted in front of Tutmosis III, and take primary role in the cult. So for those listeners who are not familiar with the problem, uh, Tutmosis III was the legitimate king. However, he was too young to rule. So at the beginning, there was a co-regency. After a while, Hatshepsut completely took over. So I would actually say that maybe the, the term co-regency is not appropriate because she was running the country, but in the quorum there is a change later in her in her reign, and this actually tells us that uh, she did not by any chance change gender. Uh, she made adaptations to her image in order to uh, be active in these scenes as much as she she have uh, she was active in real life, and I really doubt that she ever dressed as a man. And I really doubt that this was indeed not necessary at all. So she made those changes in her iconography just so the everyday person would accept her? Well, we have to bear in mind that not everyone could have seen these images. We are talking, we are talking about um, representations on the temple walls, uh, which the, the commoners would not usually see. And... We also have to bear in mind that when they would 
have access to the temple, they would not have access to all areas of the temple. And most of these scenes of cultic interaction with, with the god Amun are something which is seen only by the elite and the priests. So, uh, again, uh, one should not think about this as kind of a propaganda or fooling anyone around. You know, people knew that she is a woman ruling the country. And this is indeed not something which is completely unusual. We have examples of this earlier in Egyptian history. And considering the early 18th dynasty rulers, most of them were actually very young when they came to the throne. So it is the women of the court who were actually ruling the country. However, decorum dictates what is to be represented and how. And there are certain restrictions to this. And my point exactly is that assuming the primary role in activities in connection to Amun, uh, she has to be depicted as a king in order to be depicted as a primary figure when Tutmosis III is in the same scene. We know that she is, in her earlier reign, depicted as a woman. Uh, however, Tutmosis III is absent from the scenes when she, as a woman, interacts with the god. So, on the topic of iconography, for the people who are using these ancient examples to support um, their thought of there being a third gender, do you think that these might have been misinterpreted based on what they wanted or didn't want to see? Well, I will first give an example which I um, quoted in, in my paper. I argue that one of the reasons a specific epithet on a stila of a person called Iset and Dinacht from Abydos, and which was dated to 25th to the 26th dynasty, translated as a man-woman on the basis of one sign, among else. And this hieroglyphic sign is erroneously read as a phallus, although clearly a foreleg of a cattle is depicted there. So... In this way, we could say that this is just a reading mistake. However, I would like to stress in continuation of, of this problem that all of archaeological and historical knowledge of the past is contingent. The past does not exist without us in the present interpreting the past now. So you just simply have a figure which in original has genitals depicted, but early Egyptologists who were, uh, so to say, uh, people of their era, Victorians, they just could not published this. And these were not the topics which were a mainstream of the time. However, since the 1960s and the sexual revolution, both anthropologists and archaeologists, slightly later though, started the feminist movement even brought topics uh, such as androcentrism on the table. Later, second wave feminism brought the distinction between sex as a fact of nature and gender as a fact of culture. Then third wave feminism and queer theory turned the division on its head. And this reflections, uh, these shifts in gender study paradigms are present in Egyptology too, although they are certainly not mainstream discussions, unfortunately. Egyptology is still a very immature discipline in relation to archaeological and broader social and anthropological theory when we speak about the majority of scholars in, in 
our field. However, changes are happening and there were studies done in this direction already in the past. So there is something moving forward, definitely. Now, you mentioned that some academics may be imposing modern notions on ancient practices in terms of non-binary gender and non-heteronormative sexualities. What, I mean, are there a lot of artifacts or sources that talk about sex in any form from, that we have from the ancient Near East? Well, that, that is a very good and a very complicated question. Uh, <laughs> so I would first stress that uh, definitely uh, one could say that sometimes scholars tend to, uh, not to see what is in front of their noses. And sometimes they see through their own, there is a German term, Kulturbrille, which is actually describing our historical and cultural contingency. However, sometimes scholars simply make mistakes, and uh, mistakes can be corrected. Uh, I will now refer specifically to the tomb of Nyan Khnum and Khnum Hotep. So this is an old kingdom tomb, and since the 1980s, there are several authors, both Egyptologists and non-Egyptologists, who suggested that these two men who were buried in this tomb were a same-sex couple. Some even use the term homosexual to describe their relation. Now, the arguments for and against such an interpretation aside, even if these men had a relationship of sexual nature, this does not make them homosexual. Homosexuality is a form of identity, and the modern Western world do not predate 19th century. For this, one should turn to the seminal study of Michel Foucault on the history of sexuality. What does that mean? Pleasure and desire can be differently framed in different societies. In relation to this, the common argument for the interpretation of Nian Khnum and Khnum Hotep as a same-sex couple are the representation of two men in their tomb, in the mutual embrace, or as holding each other for hands. However, everyone who would visit contemporary Egypt, let's say modern Cairo, would be surprised to see how many men are walking freely on the street holding hands. Such a body technique is an expression of friendship and affinity. That does not mean that certain men could not use this in a subaltern way for their benefits. It nevertheless shows us how what in some circles could be considered conjugal with sexual connotation, in other circles does not have such connotation. If we would far-fetch the argument of corporal contact as evidence for sexual affinity of these men, we would have to explain that this is the only known such example. And this is the answer to your question of how many examples or how many evidence do we have for this, let's say, non-heteronormative um, forms of gender or sexual identity? Well, very few. Uh, that is, if we understand this tomb as an example of one of uh, such a form of identity. And as I said, and I would like to stress again, there is, a certainly, there is certainly evidence for same-sex feelings and affections in ancient Egypt, but there are no identity categories reflecting our own, such as heterosexual, homosexual, bisexual, transsexual, etc. Now, in your uh, article, you mentioned that there's no, there's not actually a word that translates to heterosexual or homosexual or even bisexual. And do you think that's because sex was just considered sex back then? 
Well, there are Egyptologists who are going to translate some of the words as homosexual, but there is absolutely no evidence to base this translation because it does not, uh, the translation in English or in any other modern language that does not correlate to the actual Middle Egyptian verb. Um, I'm hesitant to say that sex was just sex, nevertheless. Why? Uh, we know that certain acts were not looked upon with approval when conducted by a wrong person. Several scholars argue that male passivity in a sexual intercourse was not considered to be appropriate. Thus, it is not the same sex act which is being condemned, it's being passive in it, at least according to some Egyptologists who dealt with this topic. Again, one should also stress that this condemnation comes from a male-oriented perspective. Right, and does so it not wasn't the actual act, it was the role. Yes, and that does, even these condemnations do not necessarily reflect the attitudes of the society as a whole. And would you say from your research that Egypt circa 2700 to 2180 BCE is much different in the way that they regard sexuality and gender than it is today? Well, um, b before I answer to this question, if, if you allow me, what I actually want to stress is that there are practices, but there are no legal documents regulating who can sleep with whom and therefore which acts are forbidden. And um, there is a negative confessions in the Book of the Dead, where a deceased states, I did not neck a nekeku. Now, Neck is a verb which can be translated as to copulate, to have sex, to penetrate, and so on and so forth. But uh, there is a wide range of meanings related to this verb, which we know from the context. So we cannot easily just say neck means to penetrate. Okay. And then nekeku would be, in linguistical terms, and what that actually means, well, there are others who would understand this nekeku as a passive partner in copulation. However, this does not necessarily have to be so if the word neck geminated like this implies activity. What we can be sure of is that nekeku is male who commits certain sexual actions, active or passive, of which we are not sure. It is crucial also to know what nekeku actually does sexually in order to understand what is actually being condemned here. And now to come back to the question of are there any differences or is there much difference between uh, and gender nowadays and in the period you refer to, which could be said to be Old Kingdom? Well, although the amount of information we have for this period of ancient Egyptian history is not rich as in later periods, I would dare to say that there were significant differences. Uh, our society today is a product of several hundred years of capitalist production, and sex was and still is subject to it. Thus, sexuality, gender in ancient Egypt did not have to function in the same way as they function today. Just think about the expression of affection of Nian Hnum and Hnum Hotep, uh, however you would interpret them. Even if you would interpret them as brothers or friends, not necessarily lovers, uh, they would still be interpreted today as same-sex couple in certain environments, whereas in the others, uh, their affection would not carry any sexual connotation at all. So 
yes, in that case, uh, we, we could say that there, there were significant differences because corporal, bodily, and emotional affection to someone could be expressed differently than we express these feelings today. Okay, and what was the most interesting thing you learned or discovered while doing the research that this article stemmed from? Um, to be honest, I was really intrigued by sexual acts of the gods in ancient Egypt. I was surprised with the varieties of sexual interactions we are informed about when gods are concerned. So they could have sex among themselves, but they could also have sex with humans, taking the bodies of humans but appearing in a divine way. Like in the case of God Amun, who took the body of Tutmosis I to have sex with Ahmose, mother of Hatshepsut. Uh, the gods could also have women showing them their genitals, like in the case of the Apis bull. Uh, that is, of course, if we give credibility to Diodorus from Sicily for this report. Um, I'm currently doing uh, research in this direction, namely divine sexuality. And I hope that this research would help me address some other current issues in anthropological and archaeological theory, such as ontology, for example. So are you working on anything currently, any books or articles that will be coming out? Um, a volume with a colleague, Boyen, a Viking uh, era archaeology specialist from Denmark. The volume is on uh, archaeologies of gender and violence and uh, is due to come out next year. So it's a collection of papers dealing with uh, archaeology of gender and violence. And it ranges in Europe to Egypt uh, um, in the New Kingdom, Egypt in the Greco-Roman period, then um, also Sassanide Persia. And it, it's a very, very uh, rich volume in, in regards to the both case studies it brings and different theoretical methodological approaches to the problem. And besides that, I'm finishing my PhD, which I will submit in the next few weeks. And yeah, that would be that. Well, good luck with submitting <laughs> your PhD. I know that can be very really much. stressful. Um, is there anything else you'd like our listeners to know about your article? Well, um, the literature on the topic of gender in ancient Egypt is vast, and my paper certainly does not cover neither all periods and sources nor all scholars dealing with this topic. Interested readers are encouraged to research further themselves, references I gave. Some of the other authors might have different opinions than, than mine. Readers are invited to compare the arguments themselves. There is a wide variety of topics and approaches which indeed enrich our knowledge of gender in ancient Egypt. And furthermore, I would like to stress that whether or not certain sexual practices or gender and sexual identities are attested in ancient Egypt or maybe not condemned should not serve as an argument for condemnation of certain acts today. We make our human rights today and not in the past. That would be my message. This has been a Friends of Asor podcast. The Friends of Asor Initiative is an outreach program of the American Schools of Oriental Research. Anyone can become a friend and it's free. Just go to asorblog.org backslash FOA registration to sign up. Again, that's asorblog.org backslash FOA registration. Thank you for listening and be sure to check out the Asor blog for all of our podcasts, videos, and a whole lot more.